Hello. Thank you for watching the Taxpayer Alert program. <clears throat> I'm Al Segala. I'll be a moderator. I'm also president of the Calaveras County Taxpayer Association. And we're most interested in things that government does for or to people. Now, in this case, we have uh, a really interesting guest. His name is Jim Burling. It's with the Pacific Legal Foundation. That foundation is probably the number one protector of property rights. But property rights is a good thing to discuss. We Are they important? Jim, how'd you get involved in this thing? I've been involved with Pacific Legal Foundation for about 38 years now. And my focus has always been on protecting property rights. I got into this because I was working as a geologist and I dealt with federal bureaucrats who were trying to shut down the public lands. And I didn't think that was right. And I thought, you know, these people should be sued. And what a better way of doing that than going to law school, becoming a lawyer, and working for an organization like Pacific Legal Foundation. We've had a lot of successes over the years fighting for property rights. We have had about 14 or 15 United States Supreme Court cases, and we've won 13 of those. Uh, we're looking for another victory coming up soon, which I hope we'll have a chance to discuss. And our goal has been to defend property rights and individual liberties. And the two cannot be separated, property rights and individual liberties. Isn't that right, Al? That's correct. In fact, our, our Constitution in the 5th and 14th Amendment really specify the purpose of government is to protect the rights to life, liberty, and property. That's verbatim. And uh, because of that Constitution, we have hope for not only the freedoms continuing for us, but also future generations, unless we forget about our Constitution. Yeah. You can look at places on the earth that have not protected property rights, and you can see those are the same places that don't protect any other liberties as well. Uh, look at North Korea, look at Venezuela, uh, look at a number of nations that have forgotten that the role of government is to protect the rights and liberties of the individuals. The role of government is not to control people. The role of government is to protect the interests and rights of people. That's been the philosophy of the American nation, the United States, since before it was founded. It was very influential to the founding fathers. Uh, John Locke wrote that the purpose of government is to protect the property of the people. And when government begins to take away property, it's become a tyranny and the people should have no longer any sort of allegiance to that. Well, it's important that we have the government in the United States protecting property rights. And sometimes governments, state, local, federal, need a little help. And that's what the courts are for. And that's why Pacific Legal Foundation will go to court to protect property rights whenever it is important and necessary to do so. Well, <clears throat> our association, and I think most of the public is so grateful that you exist, you and the Pacific Legal Foundation. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that's going on now is eviction mor moratorium. <clears throat> What's happening with that? So, with the COVID pandemic, uh, truly a lot of people were thrown out of work, partly because everything was shut down by various government agencies. And that, of course, can create some hardship for people trying to pay rent. 
So various governments in various places in the country, California, a number of other states, and even the federal government got into this, have passed moratoria against evictions, simply saying that if somebody is not able to pay their rent because of COVID-imposed hardship, they cannot get evicted from their property. Well, that sounds well and good in the very short term, especially when the emergency was new and a huge problem for a lot of people back in the initial days. But this emergency has become almost a background principle. This has been well over a year now. And landlords are people too. Landlords, especially the small mom and pops, have a few rental properties, a few houses here, maybe a small apartment building. Um, and they have mortgages. They have taxes. There's no tax moratoria, so far as I've heard. Uh, they have utilities that they must pay. They have a lot of their own expenses, and they are getting deeper and deeper into the hole themselves. And so we thought it was about time that we look at the rationales and the authority to impose these moratoria. And we found a lot of times it was pretty lacking. Take the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, a moratorium was imposed on rent control that is imposed at, where states don't have it. You can file something with a landlord and the landlord cannot take actions that would cause you to leave your place. And that seems to be, it's a little unclear exactly what that means. And that's another problem because landlords don't know exactly what they can do and what they can't do. But the authority for these eviction moratoria was language in the Enabling Act for the Centers for Disease Control, which said that they had the ability to impose quarantines, to inspect fruits and vegetables for disease, all that kind of thing. And, quote, to take other such measures as may be necessary. So what are other measures that may be necessary? Well, the Centers for Disease Control says, well, that means anything. We can have a nationwide moratorium preventing evictions for any and all properties where people claim that they are COVID distressed, economically distressed. But such other authority, that's pretty wide open, pretty ambiguous, and pretty vague. So we and a number of other people have filed lawsuits around the country challenging that. Now, in the early days of the, of the moratoria, uh, this moratorium, courts upheld it, saying, well, other measures can probably include this, that, and the other thing, and why not have an economic rule that applies across the country to every single landlord in the nation? That's good enough for us. Those are the first two courts that got it. But what later courts have looked at and said, no, that's just way too broad. Congress has to give specific authority. The federal government is not a government of general jurisdiction to do whatever it wants. It has to have the specific authority in the Constitution to do anything, and that has to be spelled out in statute. Not broad language said, agency, do what you think is good. I mean, this is a problem. We have a lot of agencies. They decide something should be regulated, they'll regulate it, and they lack authority. Well, now two courts have thrown out the CDC moratorium, saying that it is not the authority other measures is not specific enough. So that's one big, one big case that we've had, and those cases are going up on appeal, and we think they may eventually reach the United States Supreme Court, because we have to rein in the power of government to shut down businesses and to basically come in and take over the landlord-tenant relationship and say, landlords, tough luck. You can't collect until this whole thing's over, and then I'll 
good luck collecting after somebody hasn't paid their rent for well over a year. Yeah, and, and then if the landlord's foreclosed on and loses their property because they can't make the payments on the loan, uh, who, who helps them then? Who helps them then? I mean, there are government programs out there, but is government going to pay everybody's rent in this country? If that were to happen, then we'd basically have all government housing, right? Yeah. Uh, there's another case out of Los Angeles that I'd like to mention, too. This is the Iden case, Howard Iden. Uh, he owned an auto body shop for years and years. It was a good business for him, but he got old and he decided to retire, and so he leased out the auto body shop to another business that now operates and runs it. But that business, first of all, was never very good on paying the rent before the pandemic, and has completely stopped paying the rent now. But in Los Angeles, Howard Eaton cannot evict these people because the Los Angeles has his own moratorium. Uh, he is unable to have these tenants removed. Now, when we're talking about the residential eviction moratoria, there's a kernel of truth to the public health and safety justification for that. If somebody is thrown out on the streets, uh, usually they're not actually thrown out on the streets, they'll double up with friends or relatives, but you have more people in closer space theoretically there's more of a chance for transmission of disease so that's the justification for these residential moratoria I think that is somewhat problematic because somebody is going to be moving into that apartment shortly who can pay the rent so where are they coming from is it's not as if these places for rent are going to disappear so the public health justification i think is a little tenuous but when we talk about for a commercial enterprise like an auto body shop where is the public health justification they're operating today if they were evicted, they'll have somebody else operating later. So it's really tenuous that there is any kind of public health and safety justification. So again, Los Angeles seems to lack the authority and the justification to impose this. And in the meantime, the poor retired auto shop body owner who is relying on this income for his retirement is just out of luck. Oh, that's, uh, that's really sad. The next case, I think, is Lent versus California Coastal Commission. Well, California Coastal Commission is a classic agency, and they probably better than any other agency in California, perhaps the nation, they do it better, they abuse property rights. Um, and here we have a case where in 2006, uh, somebody got a permit to, excuse me, well before that, back in the 1980s, somebody had a, got a permit to do a little development on some property on the coast. And part of the permit, the Coastal Commission imposed a condition that there be a public easement on the property so people could go across the property to get to the beach. Now, a few years later, the Supreme Court called such requirements out-and-out out plans of extortion in one of Pacific Legal Foundation cases called Nolan versus California Coastal Commission. But the old easements that had been forced in were not overturned without ruling. The court didn't go back. It simply said he couldn't do that in the future. So there's this old easement across this property. Howard Lent brought this property in the 2000s. And then the Coastal Commission started harassing him and said, you have to take this gate off of this easement to let the public pass and repass. 
And Howard said, look, I'm happy to do this, but there's a problem and I'm not doing it yet because I'm afraid of being sued. Why? Because this easement access actually doesn't go directly to the beach. It goes to a little cliff. And six feet straight down, there is a wooden platform, Al, with a big drainage ditch or a drainage, a drainage concrete pipe on that. And then there's 14 feet more down to the beach. So it's very dangerous. And Howard Lent didn't want to open this up because he was afraid that people would go onto this property and try to get down to the beach, fall, and then who are they going to sue, right? Are they going to sue you? Are they going to sue me? No, they'd sue the landowner. Uh, eventually they reached an impasse and the staff of the Coastal Commission decided to bring a action against Howard Lent. Now, it used to be that if the Coastal Commission wanted to impose fines on somebody, they would have to go to court. But the legislature gave the Coastal Commission the authority to unilaterally impose fines. And the staff recommended that Howard Lent be fined close to a million dollars for having this easement for, blocked off with this gate. And he fought that. He went to the Coastal Commission the, with the full meeting of the Coastal Commission and tried to defend that. And the Coastal Commissioner said, what? The Coastal, we told you to do something, our staff told you to do something and you didn't do, we're going to punish you. And we don't think that a million dollars is enough. How about $4.1 million? Because that's how much your property is worth. So we're going to impose a fine of $4.18 million against you. And they have. And so that's in court right now. Now the Constitution of the United States has an excessive fines clause. Um, and the excessive fines clause says you just the fine has to be proportionate to the impact. This fine was based solely on the value of the home and the income that he could get off of the home if he rented it out. It wasn't based on any impact of the public. It was just because they could. Because in 2014, the legislature of California uh, amended the Coastal Act, giving the Coastal Commission the authority to impose fines of up to $11,500 per day of violation. So the Coastal Commission looked at the fact that, well, this act was amended in 2014 and now it's 2020 when this thing occurred or 2019 and $11,000 a day times the number of days, number of years, we can impose an $8 million fine. We'll do half of that for $4 million. And that is what Howard Lent is dealing with right now. A court of appeal in California actually upheld that. And so we're hoping to take that to the California Supreme Court and eventually if it need be, to the U.S. Supreme Court, because we think this fine is just outrageous. Uh, it is untethered from reality, untethered from any harm to the public. Is that in uh, the Ninth District? That's in actually California Court of Appeals. It's in the state court. Okay, so then it has to go to the federal court. Well, first he'll have to go to the California Supreme Court. Okay. Then he would ask for the U.S. Supreme Court to take up the case. Boy, that's, that's horrible. It is horrible. Now the next question you should ask me, Al, is what's going on to the gate today? So after they impose the fine... What's going on? What's going today? on to the gate today? Glad you asked me that. After the Coast Commission imposed the fine, Lent said, okay, I'm stopping right now to keep this gate up. I'm taking the gate down. Here's the access. The public entity has the access to do what you want with it. I'm washing my hands. So. The next day, 
the conservancy that was in charge of the easement, they put up their own gate to protect public health and safety. So there's another gate there. So Howard Lent got fined $4 million of putting up a gate that now a public agency has there instead. Go figure. <laughs> uh, that would probably uh, uh, be good for the, uh, <clears throat> for the defendant uh, in that court case. Uh, it, it certainly going, is going to be an issue that is raised, but it shows the absurdity of California Coastal Commission. When you have country, when you have an entity like this that tramples on property rights, people begin to be afraid to stand up to the Coastal Commission. I've gotten a lot of calls since the Coastal Commission got the authority to impose these fines, and people said the Coastal Commission wrote me a letter and said that we are out of compliance because we have some rocks protecting our home and they go too far out and they're telling us to remove the rocks, but if I remove the rocks I'm afraid in the wintertime uh, a storm could come in. Uh, can you challenge them? And I would ask the question, well when did they tell you to remove the rock? So they told me about a month ago in this letter. And I have to tell them, I'd love to fight for you, but you have to know, every day the rocks are there from the time they told you to remove them, you could be fined $11,500 a day. So most people say, oh my God, if you add that up quickly, that'll exceed the value of my home and then some. And so they're becoming afraid to fight the Coastal Commission. People up and down the coast are afraid to fight a government agency when it has this kind of dictatorial power. Right. Uh, this makes us look a lot closer to countries where you get punished for standing up to the government, where you may be flying over a country and the plane goes down and you're pulled off of that plane, right? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, or in nations where the press gets suppressed because when you don't have property being protected, our other liberties are at risk as well. And the right to petition for the courts is in serious jeopardy now when it comes to the California Coastal Commission. Uh, people are too afraid of them, and we should never be afraid of our own government. Well, I think if, uh, if we had a media that was more sympathetic to, uh, to human rights, uh, a lot of this would not occur. The politicians that that pass these laws do so under cover that they won't be exposed for the harm they do by the media. And uh, so part of the correction process is not only winning in court, it's also encouraging the media to consider publishing the truth. Yeah. I mean, and we try to publish it ourselves on our website, which I do, by the way, if I may, encourage people to look at pacificlegal.org. Uh, we describe these cases and a lot of other cases. Like I said, we, we have attorneys across the country, from Florida to Washington, D.C., to here to Washington State, uh, and all points in between. We have cases going on everywhere. You can read about those cases at pacificlegal.org because we think it is important that people understand what their legislatures and what their bureaucrats are doing. Uh, sometimes legislatures and bureaucrats are operating for them, not for us. And that's something that you're right, Al, does need to be exposed. All right. Now we're down to Goodwood Brewing Company. So here is a case out of Kentucky. And as so many states, governors impose these closure orders, restaurants shutting down, bars shutting down. 
Uh, and after a while, the, as the emergency faded into what I call a background principle, and then it faded into really something that now we all have the ability to get a vaccine if we want to. Uh, and those of us who get vaccinated, we're protected, so we should be able to go into businesses and have normal interactions, right? Uh, but in Kentucky, the governor passed a series of these closure orders. The legislature, finally got upset. The voters put a new legislature in in November and they passed a law saying the governor can only have his emergency orders lasting for a limited period of time, about 45 days or so, and he cannot simply pass another one substantially like the old one. And we've actually been helping states across the country pass similar laws because we think that the governor should be accountable to the legislature and therefore closer to the people. Uh, but the governor of Kentucky, the first thing he did was veto the law when it was passed by the legislature, uh, saying he didn't really care what the legislature thought, he didn't care what the people thought. Then the governor was overridden with a veto, with the, uh, the, the legislature overrid the, overrid the governor in a veto. And so, so they overrode the veto, and the law be, and it became law. And Good. so it became law, but the governor said, I'm not going to obey it. And he went to court. And he got an injunction having the law limiting his powers enjoined or stopped for a while. So at this point, we came in representing a brew pub and some restaurants, three in particular, and we're, we're saying that these orders of the governor are illegal. Despite this other court somewhere else, what it said in Kentucky, we got another court in Kentucky to say these orders of the governor are illegal and he stopped them being enforced against the restaurants that we're representing. So this is going to go up, further up, and eventually to the Kentucky Supreme Court. What power does the governor have to ignore a legislative act limiting his emergency powers? In California, and this is why it becomes important, the governor only has the emergency powers that the legislature has given the governor. And those are limited and somewhat restricted. Now, the legislature has gone along with these powers and has passed subsequent laws giving him more power and that kind of thing because, of course, our legislature and our governor do walk somewhat in lockstep, certainly philosophically. Yeah. But it's important that the governors and even the legislature know that there are limits to the government's emergency powers. Governors are not dictators. Right. And during a time of emergency, our Constitution doesn't take a holiday. Right. This is really, really important, Al, because there was a case in the 1930s dealing with the Great Depression and an attempt to have mortgages rewritten and, and the payments. And the Supreme Court said, well, that's okay to a point, but we still have to have justice that tell us to be fair and the mortgage holders still have to be paid back. And then the court continued, said, you know, just because we have an emergency, it doesn't mean the Constitution doesn't apply. And then it pointed out that our Constitution was adopted in a time of great emergency. Our Constitution was adopted at a time when the country was going through terrible economic chaos, when the states were squabbling and fighting among themselves, where there were rebellions like Shays' Rebellion is breaking out, where we were in dire 
threat from foreign powers uh, talking, trying to push us around because we are a small country that wasn't united. But we created a constitution that protected liberties. And so the Supreme Court in this 1937 opinion called Blaisdell continued that the Constitution was created in a time of emergency. And even when you have an emergency, constitutional liberties are protected. And that goes for even the COVID emergency today. We've had plagues in the past. We've had wars in the past. We've had terrorism in the past. And now we have a new plague that is waning, finally going down. But through all these things, we have to be especially vigilant to protect our liberties. Because when we have crises, that is a time when our liberties at most are at most at risk. And that's why we're doubling down in protecting our liberties today more than ever. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, <clears throat> there was uh, uh, Representative uh, Rand Paul said something this morning. Yeah, this morning in our Kentucky case representing the, the restaurant owners, Rand Paul submitted a brief and his brief pointed out that under the Kentucky Constitution the governor's powers are limited and he continued why it is so important to have limited government because limited government is the best government for protecting not only our freedoms but for protecting our economy as well. Small businesses have to thrive in this country in order for we in us to be great. This is not a country that is designed by and for major corporations. Now look, I like big corporations, I like little corporations, but I especially love small businesses because these are the people that are out there working and putting everything they have, risking everything they have into a small business. And that's great. And sometimes they get to be big businesses, but other times they just become the sort of businesses that you and I patronize all the time when we want to go out to eat, do the dry cleaner, have our car fixed or whatever. And these businesses are important and Rand Paul recognizes that and he recognizes that limited government is the best way to protect small businesses. Large corporations, they quickly figure out how to use a regulatory process for their advantage. Yeah. But the smaller guy can't. And so if we don't put limits on government's ability to act outside the confines of the Constitution and to have government respect our liberties, uh, a lot more is at stake than just our liberties. Our enterprises that are at stake, our free enterprise, our way of life is essentially at stake if government is not limited to the powers set forth by state and local federal constitutions. I, I fear that to a certain extent our schools are not teaching our constitution or the principle, American principles to, to our kids and even at the college level. Uh, it, it seemed like uh, the philosophy of Marxism has been substituted and the slogan of Marxism is from each according to the ability to each according to their need. Now when this is applied as it has been worldwide over the last hundred years, we ended up with a hundred million political deaths, murder, people, people are murdered for political reasons, all because of this philosophy or because how this philosophy was used by very evil people. So now we seem to be moving toward this and the only antidote I can see is to promote our Constitution and its principles. And then you cannot ban people from being uh, a Marxist, 
but you certainly can expose the uh, the fallacy of their arguments. Yeah. I mean, there was a great political philosophy at, around the time of World War II, Frederick Hayek. Yeah. He wrote a book called Road to Serfdom. And in it, he explained in very simple terms that you don't have to be a political philosopher or a government major to understand. He explained why, when you have a socialist system that takes a lot from a certain class and gives to the other, it can only be done in the long run by force. And when you have to do something by force, then you essentially are devolving into an authoritarian state. And whether it was the Nazis that he was talking about or the communists when you talk about them, it comes down to the same thing. If you're going to take from one class of people and give to the other an excessive amount and do it without consent, you essentially have to have an authoritarian state and liberties have to fall by the wayside. This, so, on, that, on that note, we've completed our program. Thank you for watching. And remember, the Constitution.